your Bibles to John chapter 17 for the scripture passage that we'll consider this morning. The gospel according to John chapter 17. We will read the whole chapter. Before we we read that, just a reminder, a refresher. Last week, we looked at the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we saw together that the, the big goal of the Holy Spirit is to gather, renew, and perfect a multi-ethnic people for the Son of God in a diverse unity together. And we can say, as I said last week, his purpose was to pursue and beautify the multicolored bride of Christ. Now today, as we look at this passage, we will see that this was the plan all along, from eternity past. This was the plan of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to redeem and renew a unified people for the glory of God. So with that, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's holy word from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may also be in them and I in them. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Holy Spirit write it upon our hearts this morning. Well, loved ones, in this passage here, the Apostle John, he invites us to hear this unique dialogue, this intimate intra-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son. It's a unique vantage point that the scriptures give us here. And it reminds me of one of my favorite songs in a recent Broadway hit, Hamilton, if you've seen it, Hamilton. In that play, there's one song called In the Room Where It Happened. The song is about the historical event in U.S. history known as the Compromise of 1790 when Thomas Jefferson, he called a behind-the-doors meeting with two other men, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, where Hamilton won the decision for the national government to take over and pay the state debts, whereas Jefferson and Madison obtained the national capital for the South. So they made this compromise where they both kind of got what they wanted. And since nobody else was invited to this kind of secret meeting, well, people often wondered what was discussed and how it was that these men came to such a crucial decision. And in the song, in the play, Aaron Burr, who happened to be the grandson of the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of the other founding fathers, uh, Aaron Burr, who actually ends up uh, in human history uh, killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel, Aaron Burr, he sings bitterly about how he was not invited to this important meeting. And in the song he says, no one else was in the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens, but no one else is in the room where it happens. And what's amazing about this song, what it's getting at, is that it hurts. It hurts uh, when we are left out of important decisions. Whether it's among your friends at school, they kind of huddle around each other and they're talking amongst each other and they leave you out and they don't invite you in. Or if it's at your job um, and maybe your bosses don't recognize your work and they don't invite you into that important discussion for the company. Well, here, here, God is inviting us into the room where it happened. He lets us listen in, dare I say, to the most important and influential conversation of all of human history. We don't have to guess or assume how it happened. Here, we learn how redemption happened as we listen to the Son of God speak with his Father in prayer. It's a great invitation that the Apostle John, as he wrote it for us, inspired by the Spirit, is inviting us to listen in. And there's too much in the text for us to study all in one day, of course. So today I only want to draw your attention to five 
truths. Five truths that show us how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always planned to redeem and renew a unified people for the glory of God. If you're worried about five points, just to reassure you, I had seven originally, but for your sake, I condensed it to five. So uh, rejoice in that. And welcome to the room where it happened. The first point, Jesus' pre-existence. We see this in verses 3 through 4, where Jesus reveals that his Father sent him, and he gave him work to do. Uh, Sent him and gave him work to do before he came into the world. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, what does this reveal about Jesus, about his identity? Well, it shows us that the person of Jesus existed prior to coming into the world as a human infant. The personal identity of Jesus is eternal. Before he took on human flesh and his human name, Jesus, he was eternally known by the Father as the Son of God, his dearly beloved Son. And here we find the Son asking his Father to be glorified with the glory that he previously had with the Father before the world existed. It's key to understand that he's not asking for anything that doesn't already rightly belong to him as the Son of God. Because the Son had an equal share in the glory of God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, for all of eternity past. But when he came to earth, we recognize that he humbled himself in our human nature. And so here the Son is asking if the Father would lift him up again into that same glory where he once was, but now carrying with him our human nature as our representative to bring our human nature into the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of his light and splendor and majesty, the same weighty glory that he had as the Son of God before, for all of eternity past. But now, now in this prayer, he's seeking to be restored to that glory, not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, as our mediator, our redeemer for us, for our sake. Now, the fact that Jesus had glory with the Father before the world existed, it indicates that there was no time when the Son was not. There was no time when he was brought into being. He has always been and always will be in the glory of the Father and the glory of the Father. As we confess in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so that's the first truth that we see here, the pre-existence of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. Now, secondly, we find Jesus' posture, his posture. And John tells us in verse 1 that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, in prayer. And throughout this passage, we find Jesus assuming this posture of prayer as our high priest, as our high priest. It's key to understand that the high priests in Israel, they were called to represent the people of God to him, to present God's people cleansed with the blood of sacrifices and then to lift them up to God's presence, seeking his mercy and grace to come upon them. And the high priest, in that way, he stood in between God and his people as 
an ambassador of reconciliation, we could say. And so, too, we find Jesus standing here between us and the Father as our representative to make peace with God for us. And he's pleading with the Father to fulfill his promises, to help him secure the great solution that they had agreed upon in eternity past to save sinners like us. Full and final reconciliation that would occur, that would happen through his hour of glory, which he's referring to his hour of suffering on the cross. This is how he would reconcile sinners to God, making peace by the blood of the cross. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 22, where he speaks of Jesus' kind of priestly role, saying that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's priestly language. The sacrifice in order to cleanse you and to present you holy before the Father, reconciling you to God. And Jesus himself speaks of this goal in verse 2 through 3, where he says, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the end goal of reconciliation. We have, been di- we have distanced ourselves from God. We have rejected him with our sin, but Jesus brings us close. He brings us in to know God intimately. And that is the fullness, in a sense, of what eternal life is, to know God and the one whom he sent, Jesus, knowing God. That leads us to our next point. Jesus' people. Jesus' people. Throughout this passage, Jesus speaks of his special people. In verse 6, he refers to them as the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Then in verse 9 through 10, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is, this is remarkable, what Jesus is saying here, what he's revealing. Jesus was not, he was not praying for every single individual person that has ever lived on the planet or that exists today, but rather he was praying specifically, particularly for those whom the Father had given him to redeem, those who belong to the Father and to him. The Son was praying for, in other terms, the elect of God, the elect of the Father, that special chosen people, chosen before the foundations of the world. And this truth, it fits with the fact that Jesus was praying as our high priest. Why is that? Because the high priest of Israel, did they pray for every single person on earth when they entered into the temple and performed their duties as priests? Did they represent everyone? Did they stand in between God and every nation under earth? No. No, they prayed to God on behalf of his chosen people, which in that time was Israel. They served as mediators of reconciliation between God and Israel, not the pagan nations around them. And this was symbolically represented for all of Israel and for the priest himself with the high priestly garments, garments that he was 
uh, required to wear, which is described for us in Exodus 28, where it describes this gold ephod, this special kind of breastplate that hung over the shoulders and had stones upon it. And we can listen to the description where it says, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. And you shall set the stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And here's the purpose why. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You see, the the high priest, when he went into the temple, when he made sacrifices, when he prayed, he had the names of the the 12 tribes of Israel upon his shoulders, on the breastplate over their heart, as it were. He sought reconciliation for God's chosen people and them alone. Now, do you see the similarity with what Jesus is doing here in John 17 in this prayer? Jesus was praying for his special people, all who were chosen and given to him by the Father before the foundations of the world, for them. He prayed for them. And he didn't wear a breastplate of gold with engraved stones upon it, but instead he was clothed with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can say that the names of all of his chosen people were upon his heart, engraved upon his heart as he prayed to the Father, as he prepared himself for what would happen next, his sacrifice on the cross. And the good news for us is that he didn't just represent the geopolitical nation of Israel. No, Jesus' special people are elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That includes all Gentiles who are not of Jewish birth. And so we find that Again, this unity of God's people is not just one geopolitical nation. It's a multi-ethnic people that Christ came to save and redeem his chosen elect from the nations. Now, how do you know if you are one of his own? How do you know if you belong to Jesus? One of those chosen by the Father and given to the Son to redeem that he had upon his heart as he prayed. Well, if you receive Jesus by true faith, if you believe in his name, that is the evidence that you are elect. And Jesus says so much in verse 20, where he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. And so all who come to faith, real faith in Jesus, they show themselves to be those for whom Jesus came to save, those whom Jesus prayed for, those whom Jesus loved to the very end. So we see that Jesus is praying here not for the world, but rather for his own, for his people chosen and given to him by the Father, his own sheep that hear his voice and follow him in order to fully reconcile to God these sinners and grant them eternal life. Now our fourth point, Jesus' purpose in this prayer We see this in verse 19. Verse 19, you can see that there in your Bibles, where he says, for their sake, again, for their sake, his people, his chosen people, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, what does this word consecrate mean? Well, it's priestly language. 
This is temple language here. It means to be set apart as holy for a holy use. And it's no coincidence that this prayer of Jesus took place during the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Jesus was praying this on the night before Good Friday when he was to be crucified. And according to Jewish practice of the day, the high priest of Israel, four days before that Good Friday, was tasked, according to the Passover instructions, to thoroughly inspect the Passover lamb for its slaughter on behalf of the people, which would have taken place on that Good Friday. And so as Jesus is consecrating his body to the Father for holy sacrifice, the high priest in Israel, Caiaphas, he's looking at the imperfections, looking for any flaw or imperfection in the chosen lamb to be that Passover lamb for Israel, to present a spotless lamb as a sacrifice. The next day, when Pontius Pilate has examined Jesus, he cries out, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And Jesus was found blameless. This was the same exact language that the high priest at that time would have declared in the temple, saying, after examining the spotless lamb, saying, I find no fault with the lamb. And then the lamb was led to be slaughtered. And so we see here that when Jesus consecrated himself to the Father, this is not only our high priest, but also this is Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's a priest who gave himself up to die in our place as our substitute, as the sacrifice for our sins to make peace with God and give us eternal life. That was Jesus' holy purpose in this prayer. Lastly, point five, Jesus' petition. His petition, we see this in verses 21 through 23 where we find Jesus' great petition. He asked that his own would be one, that his people would be unified in such a way that their unity would reflect the very unity that exists, that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the unity of the Trinity. He prayed that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love me, even as you've loved, loved them, even as you've loved me. You see, this is what Jesus asked for. Think about that. This is one of Jesus' very last requests that he made to the Father in his earthly ministry. And that fact alone should cause us to pause and see how important this is, how close to the heart of Jesus this petition is, the unity of his church. Jesus was asking that all who believe in him would be united in truth and love. And let me say this, Jesus didn't only pray that day, that evening. He didn't only pray for Reformed Christians only. He prayed for all of his elect all who truly believe in him. And naturally, we hold to Reformed theology here in this church because we believe it is the fullest expression of God's truth revealed in his word. But good theology doesn't mean that we are the only ones who belong to Jesus. No. All who believe in Jesus with the true faith, they are the ones for whom Jesus prayed. They are the ones that belong to him. And whether or not their theology or practice is perfect, They belong to Jesus just as we do, just as loved by the Father 
as we are. And for us, this means that Jesus prayed that we would be united for all true, with all true believers, not only other Reformed Christians. And so that should be a desire among us. There will be factions in this life, of course, divisions on this side of glory, but we can rest assured that in glory, when we finally arrive together, we will be fully and finally united. And that's the vision that we see in Revelation, right? Revelation 5, God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There will be no denominations in glory. We will all be united in truth and in love forevermore. And why? Well, because the Father always grants the requests of His Son. He always grants, grants the requests of His Son. And this is what Jesus asked for. And this is what Jesus is going to get. Loved ones, we see that this was Jesus' deepest passion here the close of his prayer, his great desire of his heart. Listen again to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Son of God passionately desires that his chosen people would be with him to see all of his glory, to dwell in all of his love. And amazingly, he states here, in this last verse and previously in another verse, that when we believe in Jesus, we have the same love that the Father has had for the Son for all of eternity is now the love that the Father has for us that has been shed abroad in our hearts. The Father loves you as he loves his Son. Amazing. I want you to see this. That Of course, yes, it's true. And we must recognize we have sinned from birth. We have rebelled against God and his Son. But even though God has every right to cast us away from his presence forevermore, God did everything possible to pull us in to himself. We do not deserve to be in his presence, to dwell in his glory, to receive his love, but that's exactly what we get because of Jesus, because he came for us, he prayed for us, he died for us, he rose for us. You see, John has invited us into the room where it happened to listen to this conversation between the Father and the Son, and we find that Jesus, what did he talk about? He talked to the Father about us. He didn't complain about us when he talked to the Father. He didn't say, oh, Father, why did you give me these wretched sinners who just make a mess of everything? No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, Father, why did you give me such an ugly bride, the church? No. He didn't say that either. He spoke about you and me to the Father with full and perfect love. No complaints. Full and perfect love. And so if you belong to Jesus by faith, know today that he delights in you. He loves you. He gave himself up for you. And he wants you, along with all who believe in him, to be perfectly one with him in glory. That is Jesus' deepest passion. And this should stir us up, shouldn't it? To love one another more and more as Christ has loved us. Our desire, too, should be to seek the unity of Christ's church to reflect that unity that exists in the Trinity here on earth in our fellowship with each other so that the world may believe that the Son was sent by the Father. What a joy. What a joy. We've been invited into the room where it happens where our redemption was prayed for and just hours later was secured by the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. May we live to honor our high priest and his deepest passion that he expressed in prayer.
the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled beyond belief, and yet we should be humbled more. We are grateful having heard this, and yet we should be all the more grateful. Lord, we know that as we have received your love, we have not reciprocated your love for you nor for those who belong to Jesus. And so we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would stir us up in love for one another, that you would burn into our hearts the desire to seek unity in truth and in love with all who believe in you. Give us that humility. Give us that patience. Give us that perseverance and love, just as we see in Jesus, who persevered to the end and loved us to the end. This we ask to the honor and glory of our King, our Redeemer, our High Priest, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.